This morning, we continue our series in the book of Esther. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Esther chapter 1. And uh, I continue to be so grateful that Albert chooses Old Testament passages with many names. <laughs> so this morning, Esther 1, 10 through verse 4 of chapter 2. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. The Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memukin, <laughs> the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say, the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the kings did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. I won't be rereading a lot of those passages, so as we go through those, I'll just briefly reference them. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask this morning, Holy Spirit, for your presence and for you to guide us, that you would speak to each individual person here to have them listen to your still small voice as to what you need them to act upon in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Esther is the last of the historical books in the Old Testament of the Bible, and to get a full picture about this book, it really needs to be read in its entirety several times. And there are other parts of the Bible where this is not necessary to get 
the whole understanding of an entire book that you need to read the whole thing. For example, you don't have to read all of the Psalms to understand the Psalms, right? You can read one Psalm and it's a standalone, or you can read a proverb and it's a standalone. Some of the New Testament letters are like this in that you read one chapter of it and you can gather what it is and you don't have to read the whole thing. But in Esther, this narrative story as a whole, it's necessary to read the whole thing to understand the smaller parts. And while we will go chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this book, we still need to look at the bigger picture in order to get a better understanding of the whole story. Last week, it was mentioned that this greater story was one of hope. And we looked at Romans chapter 15, verse 4, where it reads, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And this hope is ultimately found in Jesus. As followers of Jesus, our hope is not found in the law and the prophets, but it is found in Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we realize the law is not to be disregarded, but we realize that our hope is not found in them. They are found in Jesus. Why do I bring up law and prophets and these sorts of things? Well, in the Persian Empire, it was a society that was grounded in codes, laws, rules, edicts. This is how they ran. And this can be traced back to Hammurabi, right? the king of the first Babylonian dynasty who reigned from 1792 B.C. to 1750 B.C. He's known for the Code of Hammurabi. And one of the earliest surviving codes of the law in recorded history is this code. An early copy of this code was found in Susa back in 1901. Today it's found in the Louvre in Paris. And so again, another group of thieves. Not as good as the Brits of the British Museum, but still very good thieves. Anyway, they always take things that don't belong to them. This is really important to keep in mind because... What transpires in chapter 1 has a lot to do with orders, commands, edicts, rules. And you look at chapter 1, verse 8 here, and it says, And drinking was according to this edict. So the king announcing this as an edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desires. So there's no compulsion, meaning drink whenever you want, however you want, just do whatever you want. And Ahasuerus also gave orders to all the staff in his palace to do as each man desired. Now, part of the reason this order was given because there was no possible way that the king could just keep up his partying pace for 180 days as a new batch of people would come in, a new army would come in, new nobles would come in, and this constantly be happening. So, hey, um, you guys do your thing whenever you want, and, you know, I'll try to catch up whenever I can, but you guys go ahead and do what you do. And so... Knowing that this was 180 days of partying for the king, it's safe to say that the king killed a lot of brain cells during this time. And his judgment is definitely not at its best, right? His blood alcohol level definitely cannot go out and drive his chariot. Like he's, it's just, he cannot do those things. And we see the poor decisions that he was making in the way that he told the queen to come down. And it says in verse 10, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, so obviously his judgment was impaired, and then you have, he commanded all these names. The only name I want to point out is Carcass, because Carcass was a vegetarian. And the seven eunuchs here, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, 
to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So this guy's judgment is totally impaired. And then he commanded these servants to bring Queen Vashti, not because he wanted his wife to meet his friends. It's not why. Why? To show them her beauty. He didn't want them to meet her out of love, kind of like you guys would at a company party. Like, hey, this is my spouse. Like, you know, meet her. But this was to show off his trophy bride. Because you look at verse 4, it gives us some insight into this guy's narcissism. He showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And so the queen was looked at just to be a part of this, to be a part of this show, not as a human being, not as his wife, but as another show thing for the king. And now you notice that he wants to make sure that she comes down with her royal crown. There are some commentaries, there are some Jewish historians that suggest that this royal crown is all that she was to come before the king and his guests with. That's it. Just come down with the crown. Now whether this is true or not, there is obviously some sort of modesty violation. There is some sort of reason as to why she refused to go down, whatever that may be. Now we know the king's heart was merry with wine and with a bunch of people around him, he's showing off. And so obviously some of his ego took a hit when he didn't want to do this. And so all of this stuff is just not a good combination together. And so he told Queen Vashti to come down so the others could look at her beauty inappropriately, whatever that may be. And this is how the queen responded, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. We know this king to have a drinking problem and we know this king to have an anger problem. It's not just here. It's also in Esther chapter 7, verse 7. This is what it reads. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. In his wrath from the wine drinking. See, this guy seemed to get angry as he drank. Now, the Bible doesn't have problems with wine. There's no drink that's mentioned more in the entire Bible than that of wine. And people drank it. Energy drinks, on the other hand, not mentioned in the Bible, sinful, okay? So anyway, <laughs> when looking at the Old Testament, you'll notice that when blessings are talked about, it involves the production of these three things, grain, oil, and wine. That's what it mentions. So all of you paleo, non-fat, low-fat, or prohibition types of people, you're out of luck. I'm just saying. But anyway, you look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 13. This is what it reads. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that we swore to your fathers to give you. And you look at what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. 
Now we know that an overindulgence of any of these things is not good. I mean, they have a ton of calories, right? It's bad. But let's break away from oil and grain and let's focus on wine because that's what's brought up here in Esther's story. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He also wrote on the flip side of that to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's also written in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Follower of Jesus is not to be led astray by anything, but to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit. We are instructed repeatedly in the Bible to also exercise self-control. Here's one proverb for that, even though it's mentioned many times. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now we see this in Ahasuerus. Someone who lost control of sound judgment and of his emotions. And so he summons his advisors as what to do next in verses 13 through 22. I'm just going to pick some of these verses out of here and not just read the whole thing again. Let's uh, skip down to 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws, again, back to the Persian law codes, edicts, of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. We know that does not work, but anyway really drastic order, isn't it? Really drastic law that it may not be repealed. This is it. Now, if it weren't for the overindulgence of wine that clouded his judgment to tell Queen Vashti to do such a disrespectful act to her, and if it weren't for the lack of self-control of his own emotions, he wouldn't have ordered such a law. Right? This decision is where there's just no going back. I mean, he's saying it cannot be repealed. Now, have you ever made a bad decision, a bad choice that you could just never go back on? Like, it was made and that was this. That was it. This is one of those decisions for King Ahasuerus because even if he wanted to change it, he couldn't. This was it. And pride, pride is a killer and it's only deadlier when it's combined with drunkenness and anger and accepting bad counsel, the combination of all these things is just really, really bad. Do you know anyone like this? Where they have this combination of things? And from a decision, from one choice, our lives can be changed. Making a decision like driving while intoxicated Making a decision of committing a regretful act out of a lack of self-control. Listening to bad counsel and acting on it. Those things happen all the time and lives are altered by these choices. Now what would make a world of difference in all of this? It's humility. Humility. Now this isn't the main point 
of the book of Esther, these points that I've brought up about alcohol, wine, or whatever, but these are points in the story. After everything that is told to us about him, you know, he reigns from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, all the wealth and all the influence and power and authority. And after all this, we actually see who he really is. And he's so different from our Lord. So different from Jesus, who was never drunk with wine, who never lost self-control, who knew what God's will was for him. He was humble, yet he owns everything in the universe. He has all authority and power. And so to think, who do you want as our king? You look at what happened after he cooled down, chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, this didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't like he just slept on it, woke up, and had a bag hangover, and then just, oh. This is talking about a three- to four-year span between chapters 1 and 2. There's multiple years that happened here, and it was during this time that Ahasuerus made an invasion into Greece. And he was really unsuccessful with it. This was during the great battle of Thermopylae. You remember Thermopylae? You guys remember this? The movie 300? That Thermopylae. That was bad. That was cool. It's that time. And so he fails miserably to try to invade Greece and take over Greece. And so it's at this time that he remembers Vashti. You know, when things are seeming to go really well with you, you don't seem to remember how good things used to be, right? When you're just kind of going on with your life and things are just good. And it's only when the reality of life sets in that you can actually reflect on what you once had, right? So after he threw the big party, everything's going good, get rid of the queen, she didn't come down. He sets out on this military conquest thinking, I have the biggest, baddest army there is. I'm going to take over Greece. Things are going to be great. And he gets defeated at Thermopylae. And finally, he gets to actually sit in reality and then think. And he thinks, I had it good. I had a good queen. And now he's starting to think about these things. Like, what did I do? I I can never repeal this. And so in an attempt to lift his spirit, a suggestion is made to the king, verses 2 through 4. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Again, listening to bad counsel. Right? Listening to bad counsel where one's character doesn't match up to their seat of authority, leadership, power, or influence. And we see this time and time again in the Bible. It's happening in our world today. People who are acting foolishly rather than faithfully with God. You read Proverbs chapter 21, 1, it reads this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do righteous and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. And so we have these lessons we can learn from this book, but let's not forget the bigger picture, the greater story. 
The story of Esther is part of the greater story of hope. How God promised to deliver his children. That God is sovereign. It's the recurring story of deliverance, of redemption. And we can trace this story all the way back to the Exodus in Egypt. And every providential act of deliverance points to Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Out of the Jewish people would come Messiah would come Jesus. And God will unite all things in Him, Jesus, accomplishing His purpose by allowing the exercise of free will and ultimately uniting all things to Jesus. And this is something that's interesting, fascinating, that God is capable of allowing free will while being providential, while being sovereign, See, God doesn't always go the supernatural route like parting the Red Sea unless necessary. He hasn't done that for me yet. Or maybe he has and I just don't know that he did it. But he has worked providentially in all the details of my life. Even though I've been exercising free will. Who made the decision to have the young beautiful ladies be sought out for the king? The king's young men. Who decided to banish Vashti, King Ahasuerus? See, these guys did it from their own free will. God's will was not for the king to get drunk and lose self-control and listen to these young guys as their hormones are raging to tell the king, look for a new wife. Like That's not God's will. They did all of that from their own free will. The wonderful thing about God is that even through our poor decisions, even through our bad choices, He has our back. Right? You look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. God does not always part the Red Sea for us, but He's always in control. See, He's not even mentioned in the book of Esther. He's not mentioned, but he's at work. He's sovereign. And we do have evidence for this. You look at world history and how Jesus incarnate came to be. You you look at your own life. And it's not all empirical, is it? We do need to exercise faith. Now, what is faith? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The rest of Hebrews chapter 11 shares what happened with the people of God by faith. And here's something the writer of Hebrew writes when there is no faith. It's found in 11 verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The Christian faith is more than empiricism, even though there is a lot of it in it. There's an element of mystery. There's mystery in the Bible. There are things that just can't be explained. Things such as 
how he turned the heart of the king wherever he will by not violating his free will. It's mysterious. Ahasuerus made his own poor decisions to drink to the extent that his judgment was impaired, to lose control of his emotions, to listen to bad counsel, to act upon those poor choices. He chose all of those things, but God is not absent in those choices. There are these mysterious things that happen. Here's an example of it. We'll get to this later, but Esther chapter 6. And let me read that story for you in Esther chapter 6 about the mystery of God. And on that night, the king could not sleep. Don't know if that was the hand of God. Don't know if it was bad hummus. Don't know what it is, right? Don't know. It's a mystery. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Again, don't know if this was God planting that seed or if he chose it. Who knows? We do know that this was before books on tape or anything like that. So he actually has someone read to him, like mommy, or I don't know who read to him. Verse 2, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, which you can see why in the earlier parts of chapter 1 that those guys are mentioned together. It's because of this reason. Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Oh man, I just ruined some of the story for some of you who are waiting for that. Never mind. Verse 3. The king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Here's part of the mystery. Or is it coincidence? Or what is it? And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? See how this guy's so full of himself, right? He's thinking like, this is me. This is me. And so Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor... Let robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden on, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. When I was a kid, there was this term that we used, moded. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's what happened to Haman here. He got moded, which came from Mordecai, right? So that's what... So Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Mordecai, right? Just mysterious and totally moded. See, mysterious things like this have happened over and over and over again throughout the Bible to pharaohs, to kings. You look at 
Abimelech or Nebuchadnezzar or Ahab. There's a ton of them. Now let's look at an example of Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. We're not going to read the whole. This is only going to be a few verses this time. Background of the story, Abraham is terribly afraid because his wife Sarah is quite an attractive woman and here's this guy. And so he's afraid that, you know, if they know that she's my wife, they're going to kill me. So let's say we're brother and sister. And so this is what God does. Verse 1, chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself say, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, his choice, that's his free will, Know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. The free will of the people and the sovereignty of God mysteriously working together without contradiction. It is just a mysterious thing. The free will of evil people is often blamed on God. How many times have you guys heard, well, if, if there's a God, why didn't he do anything about this? Or why doesn't he do anything about that? Why didn't he do something about World War II or all these other things? We hear this all the time, don't we? Why doesn't God do something about this present evil? About past evils? Here's why. It's the sinfulness of people at work. Their free will at work, exercising their choices, exercising their free will. But God has providentially worked in this evil to protect his people. And at other moments, he's refining and he's purifying his people. Now, if we don't get a grasp that this world is indeed sinful, filled with sinful people, exercising their own free will, yet God is still in control, it's really difficult to understand history. It's really difficult to understand atrocities of the world, such as the Babylonian captivity. Why was the Babylonian captivity allowed while God is still sovereign? How is that to be? See, during that time, people back then, they were really confused as to what God was doing. I mean, aren't we the chosen people? Why are we being led out of our land? Why are we being taken into slavery? But looking back to the past from the present, we can see what God was doing. We can see the purifying. We can see the refinement. We can see how he planned all these things out. And God is still sovereign today. We don't understand a lot of what is going on in the world. And the amount of evil that is happening around us, we don't understand that at all. But he's still in control. He's still sovereign. People in our world think that they can usher in peace. That they can do it on their own. When they can't even get along with their spouse. And they can't even get along with their kids or their parents or their friends or their neighbors. It's just silliness, isn't it? 
Do you think that you can have peace in the world and love in the world when you can't even get along with people across the dining table? If God wasn't in control, we would have wiped ourselves out a long time ago. And we make bad choices all the time. Godly people make bad choices all the time. You see how much we need God? You see how sinful we are? Look at a godly person. Book of Ruth, Elimelech. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, the father-in-law of Ruth, he made a bad choice to leave Bethlehem and to go to Moab. It was clearly told to him, do not go to Moab. And he goes. But God was at work. How so? That's where King David came from. King David makes a royal mistake. That was cool, huh? King, royal. Anyway, he committed adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, right? Killed Uriah over this as a cover-up. God's at work, even through our bad choices, because this is where Messiah comes from. This is where Jesus comes from. He's a God of redemption. He's a God of multiple chances. You aren't disqualified, no matter what you've done. He is a big God. He is a very gracious God. You are not disqualified from ministry, no matter what you've done. It might take some time to kind of get back to where you want to be, but you're not disqualified. Look at David. A God who rights our wrongs, who makes clean what we've corrupted. That's who he is. We mess up all the time. That's why he sent Jesus to be our Savior, a Redeemer, a Healer, the Lifter of our heads. Yet there are people who say they don't need God, that they don't need Jesus. And in the history of humankind, have we ever been able to live in peace with each other? In the history of humankind. Have we ever been able to live in a completely just society? Have we ever been able to live with unconditional love towards one another? It's never happened in the history of the world then why do we think that we'll be any different moving forward? I mean, isn't that just insanity? That's insane. Isn't just completely trusting ourselves and the things of this world insane? So what are we to trust in? God, His Word who works in this mysterious way of being sovereign while allowing us free choice, free will. And we can trust God because he has proven himself trustworthy, and you can look at history for that. Look at the book of Esther. Look at Abraham in Genesis. Look at Ruth and Elimelech. We have the history before us that he won't allow for his people to be wiped out from within the Persian Empire in Esther, regardless of the character flaws of King Ahasuerus or the evil intents of his second-in-command, Haman. God is in control, regardless of their free will choices. See, God loves you, and he's the one, despite the bad choices you and I make, made or will make, took the initiative to extend love to us, to extend grace and peace and mercy to us, to save us from sin that separates us from him. God delivers. He has proven himself faithful and trustworthy. He has a proven track record of this, and it's all recorded in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the proof of your faithfulness. If we would only 
be students of your word and see how you clearly work. As these are not just stories of fiction, God, but these are proven historical, non-fictional stories that are given to us from Jewish historians, from secular historians, from books of antiquity. That it's not just here in the Bible. God, would you humble our hearts to know that we need you? To not be so prideful, Lord, to not be controlled by something else, but that we would exercise self-control, and that we would look to you in humility to guide our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.